Comrades, the Kulak uprising in your five districts must be crushed without pity. You must make example of these people. One, hang. I mean hang publicly, so that people see it. At least 100 Kulaks, rich bastards and known bloodsuckers. Two, publish their names. Three, seize all their grain. Four, single out the hostages per my instructions and yesterday's telegram. Do all this so that for miles around people see it all. Understand it, tremble, and tell themselves that we are killing the bloodthirsty kulaks and that we will continue to do so. Yours, Lenin. P.S. Find tougher people. Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 184, The Russian Civil War, Part 3, The Background. Well, as you may have noticed, we're not starting off with any music. We're going to start off with a quote, a quote that relates to what we're going to be talking about that particular episode to start us off. Hope you like the new idea. It's just something we're trying out and see what our reaction is. Anyways, let's get back to the podcast. Last time, we looked at the commanders of the Red and Black Armies. Today, we will recount the events leading up to the Russian Civil War. Before we get into the Civil War, which would cost upwards of 7 million lives, and with some estimates claiming 12 million, we have to talk about the events leading up to the Bolsheviks seizing power, their ability to overthrow the provisional government and then hold on to power during the last 10 months of 1917 and in 1918 is incredibly improbable. If there were odds makers back then, the bets that they would have become the eventual winners would have been astronomical. Lenin was early on in 1917, hiding in Finland. Kamenev and Zinoviev were against trying to seize power at all. And this was going to haunt them when Stalin takes control. Trotsky was in jail until September of 1917. To top it off, they had no weapons and an army of six regiments of troops from the feared and fearsome Caucasian Native Division were headed to Petrograd to crush the Soviets and especially the Bolsheviks. They had no chance. Well, of course, they did win. And the fast approaching six regiments was the reason. The army that headed to Petrograd didn't switch to the Reds. No, they were led by General Lavra Kornilov, and he was intent on destroying the left opposition at the behest of Alexander Kerensky. Problem was, Kerensky got cold feet and became paranoid that Kornilov was going to topple him instead. He turned to the Petrograd Soviet to help, which in hindsight was kind of idiotic. Even at that time, many of his supporters were puzzled by this, as the demand of the Bolsheviks was the release of all of their comrades from prison, and they wanted weapons. They were now in possession of all the guns they needed to proceed with an armed revolt. The Bolsheviks used their comrades in the railways and communications arena to cut Kornilov's supplies and defeat the attempted coup, which likely was not real. Kerensky's provisional government demanded that the Bolsheviks return the weapons. 
But that, as you might imagine, was a kind of a ridiculous request. According to the movie done by Sergei Eisenstein in 1928, entitled Ten Days That Shook the World, with the revolutionaries armed, thousands of them stormed the Winter Palace where the provisional government was headquartered against fierce resistance, and they fight their way in and capture the ministers and seize control. Except it really didn't happen that way. In actuality, here's what happened per Martin Sixsmith in his book, Russia. Quote, but in reality, it was none of those. The Winter Palace was hardly defended, apart from a motley corps of teenage cadets and women soldiers. The troops had all drifted away or defected to the revolutionaries. The people just wandered in, got lost in the endless abandoned rooms, and helped themselves to the Tsar's wine cellars. Those wine cellars were to prove a problem for the Bolsheviks, as many of them drank so much of the wine and other forms of alcohol that many were too drunk to do anything else. Guards were put in front of the rooms with all the wine, but they too got drunk. Finally, many of the bottles were just simply destroyed to stop the excessive drinking. And come to think of it, they could have stopped the revolution if they had just given everybody a lot more booze. So we see that the triumphant fight to gain power was really just a dissolving of the provisional government with all the glamour that the Bolsheviks would claim in the coming years. The way I like to paint the picture of the October Revolution is more like a beer hall push that succeeded. In all, only two people were killed. But the revolutionaries were not done yet. There were many sides to work on, such as the Mensheviks and the Social Revolutionaries, which was the largest group. Lenin called for elections, which were held on November 25, 1917. This was enthusiastically met by the people. Around two-thirds of the people of Russia voted in 707 men and women to shape the coming government in the Constituent Assembly, which convened at 4 o'clock on January 5, 1918, at the Tyride Palace in St. Petersburg. The feeling of the Russian people can be best summed up by this excerpt from Boris Pasternak's book, Dr. Zhivago. Quote, Everything was fermenting, growing, rising with the magic yeast of life. The joy of living like a gentle wind swept in a broad surge indiscriminately through fields and towns, through walls and fences, through wood and flesh. Not to be overwhelmed by this tidal wave, Zhivago went out to the square to listen to the speeches. Just think what extraordinary things are happening all around us here, he said. Such things happen only once in an eternity. Freedom has dropped on us out of the sky. Russia, finally, for the first time in its history, had a freely elected parliament. The social revolutionaries had the majority, with the Bolsheviks having about half as many representatives. Lenin's party was not about to give up the mantle to these men and women. Again, from Martin Sixsmith, he gives us this quote from the Bolshevik leader. To relinquish the Soviet Republic won by the people for the sake of the bourgeois parliamentary system of the Constituent Assembly would be a step backwards and would cause the collapse of the October Workers and Peasants Revolution. We must not be 
deceived by the election figures. Elections prove nothing. The Bolsheviks can and must take power into their hands. Chilling remarks, to say the least. Twelve hours long is how long the Constituent Assembly lasted. Right away, Lenin and the Bolsheviks declared that the cadet, Menshevik, and social revolutionaries were all enemies of the state. Many were rounded up, arrested, with many being murdered. Lenin wrote, quote, Everything has turned out for the best. The dissolution of the Constituent Assembly means the complete and open repudiation of democracy in favor of dis dictatorship. This will be a valuable lesson. So when we curse Stalin for his barbarism, we have to understand who started things off. It was Vladimir Lenin. He founded the secret police, then known as the Cheka, or as they were officially named, the Extraordinary Commission for Struggle Against Counter-Revolution. He founded the Gulag system that was to enslave millions. Lenin called for the execution of anyone who hinted at opposition. Six Smith gives us another quote that is so apropos from Vasily Grossman. Quote, Lenin's intolerance, his contempt for freedom, the fanaticism of his faith, his cruelty toward his enemies, were the qualities that brought victory to his cause. And Russia followed him, willingly at first, trustfully, along a merry intoxicating path lit by the burning estates of the landowners. Then she began to stumble, to look back, ever more terrified of the path stretching before her. But the grip of his iron hand leading towards her onwards grew tighter and tighter. Imbued with apostolic faith, he walked on, leaving Russia behind him. While the West was fertilized with freedom, Russia's evolution was fertilized by the growth of slavery. Many in Russia were appalled by events and opposition to the Bolshevik regime was beginning to take form. Lenin knew that his grasp on power was tenuous at best. What he did next, though, was to gain him millions of followers. He declared that all private ownership of land was abolished and that the peasant communities could distribute the land without compensation to the owners. The land was now the people's and these peasants would join the Red Army in droves to prevent the White Army from taking away their land. Sixsmith points out that, ironically, the Bolsheviks would take back that land in the 1930s when they collectivized the farms, turning the peasants back into serfs tied to the land. Lenin knew that his next step had to be ending the war with the Germans. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was brutal toward the Russians. They lost vast swaths of land, Poland, Finland, the Baltic states, Belarusia, and most of Ukraine was no longer under their control. Lenin writes, either we sign the peace terms or we sign the death warrant of the Soviet government. Their knees on, are on, on our chest and our position is hopeless. We are compelled to submit to a distressing peace, but it will not stop the forthcoming revolution in Europe. We can now begin to prepare a revolutionary army, a serious, mighty people's army. This peace must be accepted as a respite, enabling us to prepare a decisive resistance to the bourgeoisie and imperialists. The proletariat of the whole world will come to our aid. 
then we shall renew the fight. So how are the people of Russia feeling about all of this? Well, time to head back to Dr. Zhivago and Boris Pasternak and how the lead character Yuri is feeling. Quote, it just seems to me that with all that's going on, the chaos, disintegration, the pressure from the enemy, this isn't the moment to start dangerous experiments, Yuri said. The country has to get over one upheaval before plunging into another. That's a naive statement, said his traveling companion. All the destruction is right and proper. Society must be smashed to pieces. Then a genuinely revolutionary government can put the pieces together on a completely new basis. Yuri felt sick and went out into the corridor. Some were okay with the Bolshevik position. Many were not. Many felt that they had traded one absolute monarch for another. There was a lot of passion on both sides. This is the setup for a civil war. The next question we have to ask, when did the Russian Civil War start? This is not as simple as it seems, as there is disagreement amongst historians. It's a couple of examples. Evan Maudsley argues in his book entitled The Russian Civil War, that it started the day that the Bolsheviks ousted the provisional government. Robert Service, on the other hand, in his book, A History of Modern Russia, has a very different perspective. He claims that Lenin thought the war was over in late January of 1918, after a skirmish between the Bolshevik-led forces and a Cossack group in the Don region. But fighting continued to increase in intensity, culminating four months later in May, which is where he places the starts of the Civil War. I'm going to go with Maudsley on this one, as there was an early insurrection that the Bolsheviks had to put down in November of 1917, known as the Junker Mutiny, which was organized by members of the Social Revolutionaries. It was crushed within hours, but the seeds of civil war had been planted. At this point, the Red Army, also known as the Workers and Peasants Red Army, was reorganized under the leadership of Leon Trotsky. Many military men of the old Tsarist Army were given positions in the new one, but just to make sure they didn't stray from the new Bolshevik regime, a political commissar was appointed to watch over them. The commissar had authority to dismiss and to execute anyone who didn't follow their orders. To really make sure the officers didn't switch sides and to assure they worked in the Red Army's best interest, they typically would hold members of their families hostage, sometimes murdering them to make sure they got the picture. It was a brutal way to accomplish things, but both sides did it without hesitation. Most of the fighting men at this point were volunteers, many from the Tsarist army, who felt that the Bolsheviks ending the war, which was World War I, and bringing them back to Russia made them loyal to the cause. Unfortunately for Lenin and Trotsky, there were simply not enough volunteers to field an effective army. Unfortunately for the Russian people, their solution was to conscript the people to fight the war. This proved to be quite unpopular, as you might imagine. Of course, conscription was not something the people, especially the peasants, were up for. As with the officers, formerly with the Tsarist government, the Red and White Army would hold peasant families hostage, even whole villages, to force the men to fight. As you might imagine, the peasants began to hate both sides. They didn't see any difference between the whites or the reds except for one thing. 
That was again Lenin's edict known as the decree on land, which said that the landed estates of the aristocracy and the Orthodox Church should be nationalized and redistributed to the peasants by the local governments. This was the one thing that grudgingly made the peasant farmers lean toward the Reds. But as we know from history, this was to be a devastating decision for the millions of peasants who were to suffer under Stalin. One thing about the White Army conscription, it didn't happen early on. At first, all the soldiers were volunteers. According to David Bullock in his book, The Russian Civil War, 1918 to 1922, quote, Foreign observers noted that the large number of young soldiers in the White Army, the Whites and their Cossack allies hesitated to conscript classes of soldiers that had been infected by extreme socialism in World War I, the so-called Frontoviki. They turned instead to young men, even boys from Russia's many military schools, the cadets and junkers, who fought gallantly for their cause. Most white units also had a disproportionate number of officers, and there were cases of senior officers serving in the ranks as privates. Many battalions had an officer's company, which formed an elite on the battlefield and could supply critical cadres to rebuild destroyed units or provide for newly formed units. So here we are in early 1918. Battles have been fought between scattered men who have not yet formed cohesive units. But that was all to change. Starting in November 1917 through the spring of 1918, people began to choose sides. The whites appealed to the upper and middle classes, but large numbers of peasants took to their side as well. The peasant class that chose the whites were often deeply religious and thus deeply anti-Bolshevik. This anti-Bolshevik fervor was one of the few things that would bind the whites together. Many were monarchists and many were not. The thing that mattered to them all was the defeat of Lenin's followers. The Reds were more cohesive, consisting of Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, left socialist revolutionaries, the Jewish Bund, right socialist revolutionaries, anarchists, and other groups such as the Greens. The Bolsheviks, according to Bullock, quote, Unlike the whites, who generally acted honorably, if inflexibly, the Bolshevik leadership had no scruples about forming temporary alliances against the common enemy, then liquidating that former ally in turn. As we move forward with the next few podcast episodes, you'll find out that turning against an ally was something Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin had no compunction doing. The Bolsheviks would, by the end of the Civil War, eliminate the Mensheviks, socialist revolutionaries, and the anarchists, all without whom the Red Side would not have won. There are a few things I need to bring out before next week's episode on the start of the war. First off, the Reds were, in the strongest, were strongest in the major cities like Moscow and Petrograd, as well as central Russia. This gave them a major logistical advantage as they were near the stores of weapons and arms factories, as well as access to the highest concentration of railway lines. The whites, on the other hand, were strongest in the outer parts of Russia, especially Siberia, and to the south, Crimea. This was helpful in the early stages of the war, but made things much more difficult as the war progressed. 
Another red advantage was the support of two groups, the sailors of the Baltic fleet and the elite Latvian rifle division. Finally, the slogans used by the Reds, this kind of marketing here, sent extremely powerful messages, even though they were largely deceitful. The first was peace, land, and bread. This was clearly aimed at the large peasant population. They were tired of war so, because so many died in World War I. The thought of having land of their own was also very appealing as so many still remembered what serfdom was like based on stories from their parents and grandparents. Thirdly, as I've mentioned in early podcasts, there had been many famines in Russian history, with the last major one being 1891 to 92 under Alexander III. This last famine helped increase the number of dissatisfied Russians due to the czarist regime's cover-up of the severity of the problem. It is estimated around half a million people died in that famine. What is horribly ironic is that the Bolsheviks would cause the greatest loss of life due to famine, with the first one coming during the Civil War, and the second, known as the Holodomor, occurring in 1932-33, where an estimated 5-10 to 10 million people died. The slogan that appealed to the more literate and middle class was, All Power to the Soviets. This implied a democratic and universal sharing of power with the people, something that they were denied under the Tsar's autocratic rule. Again, we have a slogan that is in direct opposition to the reality of the Bolsheviks. Whereas the term Soviet means a democratic council, we all know that this was not what Lenin or subsequently Stalin had in mind, quite the opposite. So here we end our pre-Civil War discussion. Next time, we will start with the first battles of 1917 and move through 1918 and 19 with the following episode detailing the end of the war starting in 1920 and completing in 1922. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I know that many of my regular listeners were wondering about this big gap of time between my last podcast and this one. The main reason was my family was having to move to a new house which took up way more time than expected. And then my gallant laptop that has recorded podcasts for the past almost seven years gave up the ghost and decided not to work anymore. So I've had to kind of learn a new system, learn a new recording program, and get things going again. Now, hopefully, I can get back in the saddle and produce more podcasts in a more timely manner. So now, as always, Das Vidanya is passiva bolshoya.